0: So Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38, I think it is, and it's on page 1011 of the Pew Bible. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippa. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets but what about you he asked what do you say i am or who do you say i am peter answered you are the messiah jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples he rebuked Peter get behind me Satan he said you do not have in mind the concerns of God But merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it
1: Well, there's going to be a federal election coming up pretty soon, uh, which means politicians will be nastier than usual to each other. Uh, And we've already seen that begin over the last couple of weeks. Um, This week you may have uh, seen uh, Scott Morrison take a bit of a swing at the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, suggesting that he didn't really know who he was. He said, and I quote, My opponent is trying to pretend to be everything from John Howard to Mark McGowan or even Bob Hawke. You can't present yourself to the Australian people as something that you're not. Leopards don't change their spots, even if they change their glasses. Now, most people understood this to be a bit of a swipe at Albo's recent glossy spread in the Women's Weekly. Uh, I don't read the magazine, but um, perhaps you do. Uh, And... Within this story was also a bit of a reference to Albo's recent health kick, where he's lost 18 kilos, um, and also, as you can see, had a bit of a makeover. Um, Unlike Albo, Scott wanted to distance himself from all of this, and he said, I'm not pretending to be anyone else. I'm still wearing the same glasses and the same bad suits. Um, Albo's done a little bit of work. It would seem a little bit fragile, wouldn't it, to criticise a bloke for losing some weight and getting healthier and even getting a nice pair of glasses. But you can see what the Prime Minister is trying to do. He's saying that the opposition leader has a kind of identity crisis. He doesn't know who he is. He's trying to pretend to be someone that he's not. Uh, Perhaps the most infamous identity crisis in recent years was that of Julia Gillard back in 2010. I don't know if you remember this during the 2010 election campaign, uh, but midway through that campaign, She declared that she was going to throw out the rule book on election campaigning so that people could meet the real Julia. Uh, I'm sure she regretted uttering that phrase because the media and the Liberal Party had a field day with that one, asking her repeatedly if the Julia that we'd been dealing with up until that point was a fake. It's not a healthy thing in politics to be perceived as having an identity crisis. People wanna know what you're on about. They wanna know what you stand for. So far in Mark's Gospel, uh, Jesus is having a bit of an identity crisis of his own. Not that he's confused about who he is but everyone else seems to be struggling to grasp it and we can see this when Jesus puts this very question to the disciples in verse 27 there of chapter 8 where he asks them who the people say he is and the disciples say oh we've heard some good ones. Uh, They say, some people say, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others say, Elijah. uh, And still others say that you're one of the prophets. People are clearly talking. They've all got an opinion, but confusion reigns. As odd as those answers sound to us, it does show in some ways that the people are kind of on the right track. They're warm. They're certainly not getting hot, you could say. But they are looking for some kind of Prophet, some sort of Old Testament figure to return, someone who would be a sign that the Messiah is coming, or perhaps a prophet that would tell them that God was about to act in some way. Jesus then turns the question to his own disciples and he asks them, Who do you say I am? Uh, Peter is the first to pipe up, as usual, uh, and Peter's answer, you've got to say, is red hot. He declares, You are the Messiah. And there it is. That's the answer. It doesn't get much clearer than that. Peter's declaration appears like an oasis in a desert of confusion and opposition to Jesus. And for all the floundering and the bumbling that we see from the disciples, Peter here at least gets this much. He he understands that Jesus is the one God promised to send, the Messiah the Saviour, the one God promised to send to rescue his people. Yeah. But as Ros just reminded us, that ought not to be a question just for the disciples. If Jesus put you on the spot and asked you, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? What would you say? Have you figured out who Jesus is? Do you believe what the Bible says about him? And if you have answered that question, Does your life reflect it? Now, Peter may have given a magnificent answer to the question, but it's not long before he finds himself in a muddle again. Uh, When it comes to who Jesus is, uh, he's got part of the answer, but he still seems quite unclear about what Jesus has come to do, what his mission is. See, off the back of Peter's answer, Jesus decides that it's now time to tell the disciples what the plan is. He reveals to them that he's about to go to jerusalem the capital city but rather than be crowned as king over the nation of israel he's going to be killed so pick it up there in verse 31 he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again he spoke plainly about this And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, when Peter hears what Jesus has planned, what the plan is, Peter says he isn't having it. And so he decides it's time to set this Messiah straight. No, 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 says Peter. You must be confused. That's not how it's going to be. He actually takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. See, for Peter, that's not what's supposed to happen to the Messiah. In his mind, they're going to go to Jerusalem, sure, but that's where Jesus will be crowned king. That's where the nation of Israel will be restored to its former glory. For Peter, Jesus is is messing all of that up, talking about this dying business. Now, this particular scene has always reminded me of another scene in perhaps the greatest film of all time, The Princess Bride. Do you know that the part where, if you've seen it, and shame on you if you have not, uh, the part where he gets to the, to the story where Wesley, the hero in the story, dies. And do you remember what uh, Fred Savage's character, the little boy, says to his grandpa? He, he tells him to stop reading the story. He loses it at his, his grandpa, and he says, Wesley's not supposed to die, grandpa, you're messing up the story. And I think Peter's reaction is a little bit like that. Um, Peter's time at the top of the class is clearly short-lived. He comes crashing down quickly because when Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus returns with a rebuke of his own. It's there in verse 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, things have gotten out of hand pretty quickly, haven't they? So what's going on here? Why does Jesus use such harsh language towards Peter? Why does he call him Satan? Well, seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? Well, I think it would be helpful to remember that right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, there is a, an actual moment where Satan comes and tempts Jesus. Three times, in fact, he tempts him. And in the end, if you remember... Satan offers Jesus the kingdom, but he offers him the kingdom through another path. He offers him an easy out. He says, just bend the knee, just worship me, and I'll give you the kingdom, says Satan. And so when Peter tries to talk Jesus out of the very thing that the Father has sent him to do, the very thing that he's come to do, I think Jesus hears an echo of that same temptation. A temptation that he's no doubt struggling with. The offer to find another way. To avoid the cross. To establish the kingdom via an easier path. One where he doesn't need to be killed. And so Peter's insistence that what Jesus has just said is not going to be the way things will happen. It's really the last thing Jesus needs to hear. We should never make the mistake of thinking that Going to the cross was an easy thing for Jesus. The temptation to walk away must have been strong. And so Jesus gives Peter here the harshest of rebukes because of what he's encouraging Jesus to do, or rather not to do. And Jesus says it shows that he doesn't have God's plan in mind, only human concerns. The very kingdom is on the line here, the, the whole mission of Jesus. But Jesus is resolute. He will go to Jerusalem the city of the king he knows he will go there to establish his kingdom but not for an elaborate coronation ceremony to unite people in a great uprising against Rome and re-establish Israel no he's going there to die that's what this saviour has to do to deal with sin to save sinful men like Peter to save sinful people like you and me But Jesus also sees what he's about to do as a great victory, as a glorious event. In the next three chapters in Mark's gospel, Jesus is gonna talk about his death on three separate occasions. And each time he'll also mention what follows, that he will have victory over death through his resurrection. He speaks of it here as well, it's there in verse 31. He says he must be killed, talking about himself in the third person. Uh, And after three days, rise again see the cross is coming but it won't end there sunday's coming too jesus will rise he will conquer death and in that he'll establish a kingdom that will march on and destroy death in the lives of his followers too and of course one day he will return with his father's glory and make all things new and make all things right But Jesus wants Peter and the other disciples and and us to appreciate that this path to victory goes through the cross. At this point, Peter didn't get it. He understood something of what Jesus was on about, but he still didn't understand what Jesus had come to do. He also didn't understand that the cross has implications not just for Jesus, but for him as well. See, that's what's next on the agenda for Jesus. He wants his disciples to understand that the cross is not just something for him. The cross is going to shape the lives of his followers as well. Have a look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Picking up a cross and following him. Living for Jesus comes at a cost. Jesus says, it'll cost you your very life. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. But what does that mean? Um, I mean, obviously it doesn't mean that you drop dead the moment you become a Christian. Well, I think the image that Jesus gives us of carrying a cross is a helpful one because, of course, if you lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine and you saw someone carrying a cross, well, it was pretty obvious what that meant. It meant that that was someone marked for death, dead people walking. And in a sense, when we make that decision to live for God, we die a kind of death. We die to ourselves. To our old lives we start living for him see to start living for jesus is to stop living for yourself and i think that's why jesus speaks here about denying yourself it's about handing your life over to god that it's no longer yours to do with as you see fit and if all that makes you a bit uncomfortable well that's good means I think you're grasping something of what Jesus is getting at we all need to appreciate what Jesus asks of his disciples now the flip side in all of that of course is that in choosing not to follow Jesus that has a cost as well it'll cost you your very soul says Jesus you can hold on to your life Jesus says you might even gain the whole world every dream Every desire, every experience, every pleasure you could imagine. You could, you could have it all. But is it worth your very self, says Jesus? Your eternal destiny? It's a bad deal, isn't it? If you don't come to me, says Jesus, know that you will lose your life in the end. But if you lose it for me, you will find it. That's the appeal from Jesus, hand your life over to me, die to yourself, your own priorities, your own agenda, take me on as Lord, live with me as your Lord and Savior. And there you'll find true life, true living, life as you were created to live it, in fellowship with your creator. So what does all this dying to yourself look like for normal people, if it's okay to refer to anyone as normal anymore? Um, Maybe I'll go with most people. For most people, that is opposed to one of the 12 disciples who lived with Jesus for three years and then all died as martyrs, uh, what does it mean for us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him? What should following Jesus look like? Well, at the very least, it's got to make a difference, doesn't it, to the choices that we make each and every day. That our lives ought to be different. They should look different because we follow him. And it means that we listen to Jesus when it comes to the way that we behave, the way that we treat other people. It might be the choice that you make to make some time for someone who's in need, even if that's inconvenient for you a decision to say no to selfishness, to say yes to loving service, a decision to be generous instead of tight-fisted, a decision to humble yourself and be a servant of others, a decision to value your personal integrity, to resist the corruption of greed and power. To say no to manipulating other people or exploiting people to get what you want. Decision to exercise self-control instead of indulging your baser motivations and desires. The followers of Jesus are to follow their king. To be servants like him. To deny themselves. For Jesus, the path to glory went through a cross. We shouldn't think it should be any different for his followers, Jesus tells us so. So count the cost of what Jesus called you to, when he calls you to follow him. I think that's why Jesus finishes with that challenge about not being ashamed of him, because he knows we're going to be tempted to be just that. Do you ever feel ashamed To own Jesus before others? Do you feel ashamed maybe to read the Bible on the train or the bus? Or to pray with fellow Christians in public? Or to mention Jesus in a post on social media? Or to even mention the name Jesus when you're with people who aren't Christians? Maybe it's that awkwardness of thanking God for a meal when people who aren't Christians are present. And if you're thinking, well, you know, I don't have to do those things, those aren't things that define me as a Christian, you'd be absolutely right. Of course you don't. There's no command in the Bible to pray at McDonald's. And you might have great reasons for not doing any of those things. The point is examine your heart. Could it be that you are ashamed to be associated with him? Embarrassed for people to know that you belong to him. Jesus was willing to endure the shame of the cross for us. He's not ashamed to call us his. Pray for the courage to own him without shame before others. And count the cost. Count the cost. But remember, too, that Jesus doesn't ask you to trade down when he asks you to live for him. With Jesus, you gain life, true life. Live life as you were designed to live it. And with Jesus, you share in his victory through the cross and the resurrection, his victory over sin and death. And ultimately, Jesus here talks about sharing in his glory when he returns again. So don't tire of following him, of denying yourself, picking up that cross. Because whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for Jesus and for his gospel will save it.